0: Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. America has their tomato plants in the ground and they're growing, but some of them are developing problems already. Why are there cracks appearing in the tomatoes? Why is the skin yellowing? And what's that big, ugly brown spot on the bottom of the tomato? What's a gardener to do? Today, it's Tomato Troubleshooter 2021, Part 1. It's all on episode 109 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. tomatoes tomato plant problems oh there's always problems every year and with the changing in the weather with if you live in an area where summers are getting hotter and hotter well tomato problems are changing a little bit but some good old problems remain and who better to talk about the ongoing battle against tomato pests and diseases and uh environmental concerns. Then, with Don Shore, owns the Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis, California. Don, uh, every year we start getting uh, the tomato questions about this time. It seems almost that the first uh, malady that, that comes up with people's questions is what is this leathery spot at the bottom of my tomato? <laughs>
1: Ah uh, yes, the blossom end rot question. Hello, Fred. Hi. Um, first of all, let's be optimistic. We're in an area where it's really easy to grow tomatoes in general, and most of California we have uh, we have a climate that allows us to grow them without using a whole lot of pesticides and, and other remedies. But you're referencing BER, blossom end rot, which shows up. Almost always on some of the very first tomatoes that's set, the ones that people get so excited about. They set early. They plant it early. They, they want to beat the season. They get some fruit set on there, and then they look on the bottom. And if it's still green, they sometimes notice a little discoloration or a little oddity to the bottom or the blossom end of the fruit. As it ripens, that part is soft and mushy and unpalatable. Un- yes, you can eat the rest of the fruit, but it's very disappointing when that happens with the very first fruit that's set. Notice... It's usually on the first fruit that's set. And uh, we know now about blossom end rot that it is primarily a disorder related to low temperatures during the fruit expansion phase and sometimes keeping the soil too wet when the nights are cold.
0: Ah, yes. And of course, people will rush to the nursery and look for your shelf of calcium sprays because they keep hearing that blossom end rot is due to a calcium shortage when it really is just an inability of the plant to uptake that calcium because what's going on in the soil, as you mentioned, with cold, wet soil, uh, it it can't uptake calcium. How's that uh, calcium spray shelf doing?
1: Well, I I have it up there for the people who won't listen to me. (laughs) And uh, we not only get uh, requests for calcium spray, we get requests for gypsum, which is a calcium product. We also get requests recently for some reason for super phosphate, rock phosphate, potassium products. And of course, the inevitable Epsom salts as somehow going to solve this problem because they're focusing on some kind of Cation, some kind of fertilizer remedy for what is actually a physiological disorder of the plant. So the, the bad news is you don't have an on-the-shelf product that's going to solve it. The good news is as the soil warms up and the plant grows and you water deeply and evenly, the next fruit will be fine. One thing many gardeners have observed is that some varieties are way more susceptible to blossom end rot than others. Roma, which is a very popular home garden tomato variety, the first fruit almost always get blossom end rot, just plan on it. And actually, you can you can see that discoloration even before the fruit ripens. If you see that, my suggestion is just pick those off, dispose of them. The next ones that come along will be fine. So this is a problem that the plant basically outgrows.
0: Yeah, Blossom Androd, for the most part, is operator error. And it it could be a number of things like you mentioned, uneven watering, too much nitrogen fertilizer can also lead to that as well. Or if your soil pH is wrong, I think tomatoes prefer a soil pH usually in the range of what, six to 6.8 or so.
1: Yeah, and most of us on our side of the valley are dealing with even higher pH issues, and so you, that might be a factor. Ammonium based fertilizers are definitely correlated with it. So if you're using ammonium sulfate, that could be a factor. Again, the most common correlation I've observed is people planting early, and they may not be listening to this podcast, which tells them to plant on April 27th. Well, that's maybe yes. <laughs> here in this area, uh, waiting until the soil temperature is about 60 degrees or nighttime temperatures are about 55 degrees you can plant earlier and the plants will grow fine if the temperatures don't fluctuate too wildly but that early fruit will be affected and so one of the most common things i find when i ask people when did you plant is that these are the folks who planted in march early april in this area the plants are growing fine but that first fruit may just have to be sacrificed good news we got a very long growing season plenty of time for good fruit to develop
0: Yeah, exactly. Have you asked the question when people are complaining about blossom end rot if they are growing in raised beds? Because sometimes if you plant in too sandy of a soil, that can lead to blossom end rot.
1: I'm sure that's a factor. And we have more and more people doing that. And honestly, managing the soil and the soil moisture especially, and in fact, the nitrogen in raised beds is more complicated than just out in the open garden soil. So that does, that becomes an added factor as well. So blossom end rot becomes one of those things that we just have to move through. And uh, I watched the weather and I've noticed a strong correlation of blossom end rot about eight weeks after we have a unusually cool Period of night temperatures. Mm. As we record this show, we're going into a period when the nights are going to drop below 50 degrees uh, for three or four nights here in the Sacramento Valley. Uh, That's not harmful to the plant. But my guess, if I marked my calendar for about eight weeks out, because that's how long it takes for from blossom to pick for most varieties, about eight to nine weeks for the fruit to ripen from when it first sets, I'm guessing some of those fruit will be affected by those nighttime temperatures. My only suggestion would be to gardeners to water more carefully, water deeply, thoroughly. And then have intervals between watering so you're not keeping it constantly soggy. Uh, That really is the key anyway to successful tomato growing, but it really seems to be a very important factor in blossom end rot.
0: And I think a lot of these purchased alleged uh, cures for blossom end rot puts in the gardener's mind that they work. When in Mm -hmm. reality, what they're doing, they're now paying more attention to their plants and they may spray on a a calcium spray that basically just rolls off the plant. Doesn't do any good, (laughs) but they are watching their watering more and they're they're being more careful.
1: They're, they're watering more attentively, which is really what we're trying to get at. Also, the placebo effect is a real phenomenon in horticulture. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: Yeah.
1: It, it is. I did this. I did this. It worked. Therefore, I'm going to do it again next year.
0: <laughs> yeah, we usually do more combination attempted cures than just one. And then we go back and think, oh, well, that one thing worked. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe not. The Tums, tums tablet underneath the plant when it was planted, right. Oh, don't don't even say that.
1: <laughs> Let's back up. We don't recommend Tums for planting
0: <laughs> with yes. tomato plants. And Epsom salts don't do anything for blossom end rot. <laughs> One nice thing about using mulch around tomato plants is that can help uh, moderate blossom end rot because what mulch does, it helps to moderate soil temperature and moisture fluctuations.
1: Yeah, we want to keep the soil moisture even and not keep the roots saturated and not let them go too dry. Seems to just be a stress reaction more than anything.
0: I am seeing more pictures of people's tomato gardens on social media, and they're using plastic mulch around their tomatoes. Mm. And there have been studies in the past that show certain colors of plastic mulch, like red, can increase early tomato production, but I'm wondering uh, what plastic mulch might be doing to the soil temperatures.
1: I would think it would be increasing them in some cases, and I think it would also make it more difficult for you to water correctly. So I would urge people not to jump too quickly into things like that. The common mulch with compost, some sort of good organic material, is always beneficial, especially in a raised planter where you're having difficulty maintaining even soil moisture and maintaining a good steady supply of nutrients. The mulch you choose, if you buy a good quality product in a bag, probably has some nutrients in it, probably has some source of nitrogen, as well as just enhancing the soil moisture and, and its ability to retain moisture and retain nutrients. So mulch is good. My preference is natural mulch, something you actually buy that's a good quality compost product.
0: All right, let's talk about uh, sun issues. I Here in California, uh, because of our increased temperatures in the summertime, longer bouts of heat, we're seeing more and more uh, Plant failure by July, early August, where uh, some varieties that have been uh, very popular here, like Juliet, all of a sudden are croaking in midsummer. And I'm wondering what sort of strategies people can employ to mitigate that if they live in an area where the weather is getting uh, too hot too soon for too long.
1: Well, I just had a conversation with someone who was talking about how great his tomatoes did last summer, and then they all kind of fizzled out in August. Um, They shouldn't do that. They should continue to grow all the way till Thanksgiving, practically here in the Sacramento Valley and many parts of California. Invariably, I then ask, How are you watering? And what they've done is they have set up a watering system early in the season, which was appropriate to the young seedlings and even to the young growing plant, but does not provide sufficient depth of watering to a more mature plant. Tomato roots grow deep. They'll go down as deep as they possibly can. And so my suggestion in general to get your tomato growing, flowering, and fruiting longer is to water more deeply as the season progresses. Less often, if you prefer, depends on what else is in the bed with the tomato plant, Personally, I always have my tomatoes separate from almost all the other vegetables and because they need less frequent watering, but longer watering as the season goes along. And that way, if your plant is growing well and you're watering deeply, it can hold the blossoms, it can hold the fruit, and you can be harvesting all the way through October and even into November here in the Sacramento Valley and many parts of California and other climates that are similar to ours. My biggest harvest invariably in my garden is in the month of October when the fruit that's set in August are ripening. And I have a lot of people coming into my shop in August whose plants are sort of fizzling out at that point. Invariably they're running their drip systems for 10 or 15 minutes Perhaps every day, perhaps every couple of days. And that's nowhere near long enough. I think you're you have a good example of how long you run your drip systems on your raised beds. And I, if I recall, it's a little longer than 10 or 15
0: minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's, <laughs> it's more like two or three hours uh, yeah. twice, maybe three times a week. Depends on the heat. And the whole idea is to get that water down as deep as possible to encourage the roots to go deeper. If you're just watering a drip system 10, 15 minutes, you're putting on a quarter of a gallon of water.
1: No, that's enough for the young seedling when it first goes in and for the first few weeks. But it's best to just water longer. Unfortunately, raised beds once again have the drawback of draining out more quickly. So you definitely have to water more often in a raised planter. Uh, Those who are just doing it out in a normal garden bed may be able to go five, six, seven days between waterings as long as they run the system for a couple of hours. The main thing is a tomato plant needs several gallons a week. And if you don't give it that, the plant will keep flowering, keep trying to fruit. And then, yeah, just kind of fizzle out as we get into the month of August. We can continue to harvest well into the early fall here as long as the plant roots get deep enough and they get the moisture that they need.
0: You're making all those people listening in Michigan. Michigan, very, very jealous.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is tomato country out here. All those tomatoes you buy in cans in the winter, a lot of them came from California. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the other thing that happens in the summer heat though, and this happened a lot in the summer of 2020, we had seven heat waves in the Sacramento Valley. The fruit burned. It's suns it's scalded on the west or the southwest side of the fruit as it was ripening. And that's a that was a real problem. We of course, if we're going to have hotter summers and hotter hotter episodes of high temperature during each summer, That can be a real risk on the fruit as it ripens. And so sun scald is something, especially people growing peppers, bell peppers have commented on this. But it also happens on tomatoes if the fruit itself is directly exposed to the sun at five or six in the afternoon when we're 105, 110 degrees. That fruit can be damaged to the point that you can't really use it. So that has been an issue, and I expect we can anticipate it'll be an increasing issue.
0: I was just watching a squirrel steal something from my yard and move on. (laughs) I think he took a donut peach. All right. It's very nice of you to share your wild share your garden with the wildlife. Yes, I know. All right. Uh, yes. Yeah, sun scald uh, usually manifests itself as a light brown or leathery look on the side that's exposed to the sun. I think one problem that people are doing that is encouraging sun scald is they're pruning the leaves away for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, keep that canopy as dense as you can. I will say that certain varieties are more susceptible to it. I've never personally been a big fan, for example, of Celebrity, which is a very high-yielding tomato, but it has a pretty thin canopy of foliage. And we get a lot of sun on the fruit on Celebrity. Look at your spot where you're planting them. That would be one possibility. If you're having a chronic problem with sunburn on your fruit, uh, maybe you do find a place that's a little shaded in the afternoon. My concern is people are coming in looking for shade cloth to put over their vegetables vegetable gardens, you know, 55% shade cloth over their tomato plants for the growing season, I can almost guarantee that will reduce your yield. So what you really, you don't want to shave the plant. Summer vegetables are full sun loving plants. What you want to do is shade that fruit as it's beginning to ripen if a heat wave is in the forecast. So some people will just put a couple stakes in the ground to the west of the vine and be prepared to just put some shade cloth over that if we have a heat wave. But here's another suggestion. If you have fruit on the vine that is at breaker stage, getting into some fruit physiology jargon here, in other words, gone from solid green to just lightening up a little bit or even a little bit of that yellow or red color, it'll ripen on your counter. Very high temperatures slow down the ripening of the fruit on the vine. This is a fact. When we're 100 degrees or even 95 degrees plus, ripening slows down outside. On your counter in your kitchen, it will continue. So if there's a heat wave threatening, and we certainly have warning about these you know, triple digit temperatures, and you've got a bunch of fruit that's just blushed or beginning to turn red, perhaps if those fruit are exposed to the direct western sun, you may wish to pick them Bring them in, set them on your counter and let them ripen over the next three to five days indoors as a simple way to avoid sun scout on that particular batch of fruit in that particular heat wave.
0: I would think it would be important, just like you would be harvesting th- those tomatoes that are slightly yellow or turning towards the end of the season when you're doing it now, when you put them on your counter, you would want to separate them in space and have air circulation all around them. So possibly uh, set them in a container, maybe bring in one of those garden trays and yeah. that always looks nice on the kitchen counter and uh, <laughs> and keep your tomatoes in a single layer with a little bit of space between each one so they're not touching.
1: Yeah, if there were any kind of injury on one of them, such as caused by, oh, stink bugs or something like that, it might lead to some rot and and decomposition, which can spread pretty quickly to the fruit nearby. In general, when you're storing things like this, not like the peaches, whatever, you bring them into the house, they will continue to ripen on the counter. They shouldn't be in contact with each other. Um, you could get a special tray just for this, just to make it more elegant, put it out on your counter, and those are the tomatoes that are ripening. But is it, most people don't know that the high temperature slows down the ripening process. Uh, it actually does. It kind of shuts down the plant when it's extremely high temperature so if you're wanting that tomato for a salad three days from now and it's 100 degrees it'll actually get there faster on your counter than it will on the vine
0: hmm. okay two other sun related issues you may be seeing on your tomatoes if you live in a high heat area solar yellowing and tomato fruit cracking and both of those Ooh. basically are are cosmetic it, it you know again use that kitchen knife and cut away the discolored portions. Well, and they're
1: also varietal. Uh, a lot of the heirloom types are known for cracking or or splitting. And it's just one of the things that goes along with growing those particular types. That's why they're not commercial varieties, because they don't hold well or store well. They're fine. There are certain varieties I grow every year. Amos coli, which is a great sauce tomato. I know it's going to crack along the stem, and it just happens, and you just cut that out when you use it. And that's one of the reasons, if you're into storage or you want your tomatoes to look picture perfect, Just one of many reasons for focusing perhaps on having at least some hybrids in your portfolio.
0: I like what you said in a previous episode of Garden Basics about choosing heirloom tomatoes, and that was to choose heirlooms that were developed in your area. And we talk we talk about Brandywine only producing one tomato here, whereas if you're growing tomatoes back in Pennsylvania, where the Brandywine came from, you'll have a a bush full of tomatoes. Presumably. Yeah, Yeah, I assume there's a
1: reason they grow in Brandywine, Pennsylvania. Uh, My experience here is you get one to two very large, extremely delicious fruit off of a 10 to 12 foot vine, which is not exactly the yield I'm expecting. Most of the heirloom varieties are from the east coast of the United States. Well, not the east coast, but upper Midwest, mid-Atlantic states, Pennsylvania, Ohio, places like that. Beefsteak, brandy wine or two that I very routinely talk people out of at my garden center because they simply don't yield well here. We don't have very many heirloom tomatoes in California because California is too young to have developed any varieties that have been around that long. We do have, of course, varieties from Italy and places like that that are very well adapted to our climate here because it's a very similar hot summer, low humidity climate and try the heirlooms. That's fine. But I'm very nervous when people come up to the counter with six tomatoes and all of them are heirloom varieties. I say, could you at least throw in a, you know, a cherry tomato in there or an early girl or a champion or something so that I know you'll get some good yield? Because last in, in, in 2020, as an example, very hot summer heirlooms in general did not perform well. A lot of tomatoes, even hybrids, didn't perform well, but they were particularly uh, just slow at producing and didn't do very well. So try to balance your your heirlooms for their flavor with your hybrids, which also have very good flavor for their reliable yield and their disease resistance. That's another big advantage of hybrid tomatoes.
0: Like they say at the stock market, past performance is no indicator of uh, future results. Uh, let's talk Correct. about what what worked last year <laughs> in our gardens yeah. here. <laughs> uh, here in California, again, heat was a big issue. And surprisingly, the one of the best performing tomatoes in my yard was the orange ox heart, which is an heirloom. And I think the reason for that, it was getting late afternoon shade.
1: Yeah, your local microclimate makes a huge difference. And uh, last summer, 2020, Early Girl was a top performer for me all season. And my general expectation is it's going to be more of an early producer and a late producer. I happened to plant it where it got shade after about 3 p.m. And I think that was a big factor just because of the number of heat waves we had in the summer of 2020. So it's not a bad idea if you're a longtime tomato gardener uh, to keep notes. And see what the consistent patterns are. Uh, it, no variety performs perfectly every year, but there's some varieties that perform poorly in general, year after year. I've yeah. mentioned a couple of them, Brandywine, Beefsteak, and others. And I try new uh, new varieties every year, and I've come up with some that are very consistent. So I do have a list on my business website of my picks of the, you know, the top five or six, but I also throw in, try new ones. There's a whole new series of wild boar farms, tomatoes, doing very well here in the Valley, here in the Sacramento Valley. But I think your listeners back East might want to try them, see if they do well in... Brandywine, Pennsylvania or places like that. These are these are developed by a farmer in California. So they may become our equivalent of heirloom varieties. Uh, He's he's a farmer. He wanted yield and he wanted flavor as well. So he's looking for ones that are good performers. You just got to try different things every year. You got to plant 20 or 30 tomato varieties. That's all there is to it.
0: (laughs) There are just so many problems with tomatoes Don Shore will be back next time with even more tomato troubleshooting advice for us. And on that episode, we're going to be talking about tomato hornworms, uh, root knot nematodes and the various wilts, fusarium, verticillium, bacterial speck, black mold, late blight, all sorts of fun stuff. So we'll have more with uh, Don Shore next time here on the Garden Basics podcast. Don Shore, Redwood Barn Nursery, Davis, California. Thanks for uh, troubleshooting our tomatoes for us great to be here. Thanks, Fred. Don mentioned earlier about his list of his favorite tomato varieties to grow. You can find that list at his website, redwoodbarn.com, redwoodbarn.com. You can also find out about his radio show and podcast at redwoodbarn.com as well. You've heard me talk about Smart Pots, the award winning fabric planter here on the Garden Basics podcast. They're durable and reusable. I've been using mine for five years now, and once again, they're being pressed into service in my yard. I have this problem I, I grow too many tomatoes for the amount of allotted sunny space I have for them. So those extra tomato plants go into the Smart Pots. I place them in scattered areas around the yard where I know they'll get enough sun which is a premium in my yard and even 5 years later I can pick up those smart pots plant and all and move them around without fear of the smart pot tearing or ripping. Smart pots breathable fabric creates a healthy root structure for plants and smart pots come in a wide variety of sizes and colors. Visit smartpots.com/fred for more information about the complete line of smart pots lightweight fabric containers. And don't forget that slash Fred part, because on that page are details of discounts where you can buy smart pots at Amazon. Okay, now I understand maybe you want to see the smart pots before you buy them. That's not a problem. Smart pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. are you thinking of growing fruit trees well you probably have a million questions like which fruit trees will grow where i live what are the tastiest fruits how do i care for these trees the answers are nearby they're just a click away with the informative fruit tube video series at DaveWilson.com. That's Dave Wilson Nursery, the nation's largest grower of fruit trees for the backyard garden. They've got planting tips, taste test results, links to nurseries in your area that carry Dave Wilson fruit trees. Your harvest to better health begins at (music) DaveWilson.com. Every week, we like to talk with Warren Roberts out at the University of California, Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. He is their superintendent emeritus. Every week, he has a plant of the week for us. And today, Warren, it's an ornamental grass. I think ornamental grasses are very unused in the landscape, and they can provide some very nice accents. And this one is, uh,
2: it it can be a pretty good-sized ornamental grass. Yes, the Stipa gigantea is well named. So probably the biggest of that genus. The common name is in English is giant feather grass. It's one of my favorites for its uh, beauty, and it brings light and movement into the garden, even on a almost a still day there's any movement at all these beautiful plumes of flowers and seeds dance a a little bit maybe a slow dance but but very very beautiful it was roger race the great california plantsman pointed out that it brings movement and light into the garden it certainly
0: does the clump itself can get what two to three feet tall but those flowers you talked about those can get up to what six feet tall
2: six feet or even more if you want a very dramatic grass in the garden it's a good one to use and it's not weedy like the pampas grass species are Uh, it's not quite as bold i suppose and aesthetically but to me it's it's more graceful and more beautiful Uh, i have it in my own garden and i i really like it very much it's native to uh, mediterranean areas in the western part of the Mediterranean. So it's native to Spain, central and southern Spain, also native in, in adjacent Portugal, although I guess technically Portugal is not on the Mediterranean, but it certainly is, has a Mediterranean climate. And also across the uh, streets of Gibraltar into North Africa.
0: I think that besides uh, thriving in Mediterranean areas, it can grow. In uh, many other uh, areas of the country, I noticed that the uh, Sunset National Garden book points out that it can uh, grow in sunset zones 29 through 34, which is basically through the south and then up uh, the Atlantic coast through uh, the uh, mid-Atlantic states, up through uh, Delaware, Eastern Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, and on south. So this uh, plant actually probably has a pretty good range throughout the country.
2: Yes, I I think it uh, it would in areas with wetter summers. Planting it in well-drained areas and sunny areas would probably give it more chance of success. But it would grow. It can grow throughout Mediterranean or Mediterranean-like climates all around the world. For example, central Chile, but also I think Peru and Argentina, Australia, uh, parts of New Zealand. I think it's, it has a really broad a really broad range. It's South Africa too. In Spanish, it has some nice common names, Banderillas, which means little flags. I think that's the allusion to the uh, the way the plant looks when when it's in in a breeze. It also has the common name Baron, like Baron, like B A R R O N, and also Berceo, B E R C E O E O, and Berceal would be a place where this grass grows. I, I should have looked up the uh, names in Arabic, Berber, and Portuguese, but I'm sure that has, would have common names there as well. Uh, lovely grass. And it fits in easily. It doesn't crowd things. Even after the flowers are gone and the seed are gone, it looks very nice. I would say the time to cut it back would be when it starts looking disheveled or probably about the time of the winter rains coming or I would say, uh, mid-fall, late-fall. So it's a once-a-year maintenance plant.
0: And so it's, oh, it's ideal in Mediterranean climates, but uh, give it a chance, too, if you live in a, in a fairly mild climate, probably down to USDA Zone 6. You might just uh, give it a shot, see what happens. And I think
2: also, you know, we were thinking, in, for example, in Bulgaria, it would probably be <laughs> fine along the Black Sea coast, <laughs> uh, certainly all around the
0: Mediterranean area. So there you go, my fans in Bulgaria, the giant feather grass, Stipa gigantea, give it a shot. What the heck? Since they got palm trees growing in Switzerland, why not? Anything can happen. That's true. (laughs) All right. Warren Roberts with the plant of the week, the giant feather grass. He is the superintendent emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. You can visit it online at arboretum.ucdavis.edu. Warren, thank you so much. You're welcome, Fred. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday and is brought to you by SmartPots. It's available just about anywhere, and that includes Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for Northern California gardeners, it's the Green Acres Garden Podcast with Farmer Fred. It's available also wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. And thanks for listening.